Research shows that Arab students face more intense identity-based bullying than any other group of students. I had a girl student on the bus in the same community that I taught in. Every time she walked onto the bus, the students agreed that they would have paper balls and throw them at her and then scream Allahu Akbar and then all hide under their chairs, right? And this was her daily experience. And she went to the dean of students, she did what she was supposed to do and was told that it wasn't bullying because it was different kids every single day. And so again, glossed over. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher down here in the Los Angeles area. This is year 18 in the classroom for me, and I just want to welcome everybody for joining us here for another episode of All of the Above, where we dig into all the latest issues and, and, and controversies around the world of education and also have some super dope guests who help us expand our, our understanding and our knowledge of how we could better serve our most marginalized communities in the classroom. And Jeff, it's mid-September. I believe all the school systems now now are are back in it, back in the school year. Our, our last few episodes, it was kind of like some of our listeners had already been already started their school year. Some were not starting their school, hadn't started their school year yet. I think now everybody's back. Everybody's back now, mid-September, I think. As far as, as, far as I am aware, uh, you know, you got a few of the colleges and universities on that quarter system or whatnot that, that might be starting like, you know, this week or next week kind of a thing. But uh, I think K to K to uh, PhD, we are pretty much back in the saddle for the 2020. What are we? 2021-22 school year. You know, the mind is the first thing to go. <laughs> they say, man, well, I'm uh, not as sharp as I used to be. Um, but yeah, man, back in the saddle, uh, just this, um, you know, just uh, recently, we had that kind of final wave of, you know, my, my people, Manuel, uh, the upper Midwest and, uh, you know, the homies out in New York City and that kind of mid-Atlantic region who start the Tuesday or the Thursday after Labor Day, all you know, getting back in the swing. So, we're up, we're we're running, uh, and hopefully everybody got the masks on and we are saving lives. I'm sure everybody does, Jeff. That's not even controversial. Come on now, it's just a mask. Obviously, <laughs> obviously, there's no problems there. Um, but I do mm-hmm. want to shout out. I do want to shout out the the world's number one public university, which, uh, you know, UCLA, of course, um, they are one of those, one of those schools that are on the quarter system. So I believe their first, their first classes start this coming week, I believe. So shout out to all the, all the Bruins going out there and doing it big. Indeed. Indeed. So Jeff, here we are, all the above full episode here, which means we probably have a super dope guests. So Jeff, can you let us know what's on the agenda for today? Yeah, man. Well, as usual, everybody, we got a good one for folks. And uh, I'm really excited about today's guest because I love when we bring people on the show, Manuel, who help us expand and further enrich our conversations about justice and opportunity and equity um, in, uh, in education. And today's guest is certainly uh, a profound voice who, um, you know, pushes the envelope not only in her context, but, uh, you know, through through her uh, larger voice on social media um, and helping us pay greater attention to and attend to the needs of a group of students who are very often rendered invisible 
in the ways that we, you know, sort of rigidly uh, categorize students by race um, in this country. And this is our um, Arab and Muslim students, um, of course, who kind of cross uh, nationalities, cross phenotype and, you know, and sort of quote unquote racial group, um, but who, uh, who often experience many of the same manifestations of, uh, you know, of racism, of xenophobia, of, you know, sort of othering um, that, uh, that many other groups of, of students of color, of immigrant students um, have to grapple with in our system. And we have with us today, Manuel, Dr. Sosan Jaber, who is uh, just a, I have to say, just a profound, courageous voice um, speaking up on issues pertaining to the education of Arab and Muslim students, specifically, um, in her case, attending to the, um, you know, the needs and visibility of uh, Palestinian uh, young folks. And so, and I should say, Palestine in the curriculum and in our discourse about um, the Middle East as well. And so uh, Dr. Jaber is going to be with us. It's going to be a fantastic conversation. You definitely don't want to miss it. That sounds amazing, Jeff. And I just want to say, you know, unbiased, unbiased perspective here. I just love how how all of the above brings in guests who are experts in such a wide range of topics or have expertise in such a wide range of topics. I just love how I could just watch this show or listen to this show and learn something new and explore something new that perhaps I wasn't too familiar about. I just really like that. And that's coming from an unbiased perspective here, Jeff. Just um, mm -hmm. want to put that out there. You're not you're not uh, part of the liberal deep state media with that comment. Mainstream Manuel? media, no, Jeff. Yeah, I think it's just MSM. That's what the cool MSM kids, yes uh, are saying nowadays. <laughs> All right, folks. MSM let's... pushing CRT. Uh, you know, communism. So you're uh, just throwing all those words out there, getting us flagged <laughs> on YouTube. The algorithm's <laughs> going to pick all that up, and all those haters are going to show back up in the comments. Uh... <laughs> those haters love showing up in the YouTube comments. Yes, man. they will. And uh, you know, we've we've. I think it's been maybe a year or two on the show since I've since I've uh, referred to the immortal words, uh, Manuel, of the great philosopher Taylor Swift. But uh, <laughs> haters gonna hate, okay? And uh, we gonna shake it off, okay? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. All right, folks. Up next is our do now, where we take a look at recent news and headlines in the world of education. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for today's Do Now. Let's take a look at some recent headlines in the world of education. Jeff, how are we going to do the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, it is uh, here in Los Angeles. We are approaching that five-week mark of the school year, Manuel, which means grades are due. Time for that report card. First one of the year. Uh, let, your, let your shivers proceed up and down your spine, parents and families of America. Well, ouch, man, ouch. We just returned from a year of distance learning, Jeff. It's still a pandemic. And here we are already letting kids know that they're failing or whatever the grades might show. That's well, sad, Jeff. They, sad state of things, Jeff. How will they come to learn, Manuel, that they're not cut out for academic success if we don't fail them early in the process? Manuel, see, it's all part of a, you know, a larger picture. That is true. I see it. I see the vision, Jeff. I see the vision. Yes. Keeping our kids down. Because nothing leads to success like repeated failure. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is awesome. I need that on a coffee mug. All right. All right, Jeff. Well, the first grade for today actually 
is not an F, which is great. Um, this one, you know what? A freaking plus. A plus, Jeff. Love it. Love it. You don't no comment about great inflation or anything like that. Like, how does someone have an A plus? Are they I, have they mastered you know, the I, material to that extent in just these short few weeks? I so you know I will say there were times when you know it's been a while since I have uh, had to hand out grades, Manuel. But there were times where students did work that was just so wonderful and exceptional. True. And I wished I would have been able to put on a report card like not only did you get an A, but you got an A freaking plus, man. Like that was nice work. Yeah. I appreciate your genius. Um, you know, there, there's you know it is. Sometimes the letter system, uh, you know, it reduces what we have to say in terms of feedback to, to students to just sometimes like this, this singular letter. Well, I feel like sometimes, you know, it's it feels fair. Like, you know, you got to be like, you know, you're doing pretty good, man. Like you're, you're doing what you need to do. You're learning good things. Are you acing everything or, you know, is there room to grow? Sure. But like, I want to give you a good pat on the back. Like, nice job. Right. Um, but sometimes, you know, it's hard to like, it's, it's hard to communicate nuanced ideas in a letter, I guess is all I'm saying. Yeah, I, I, I hear you there. And in fact, this A freaking plus, you know, the story behind it, there's, there's, there's a lot to it. There's a lot of layers there to help explain why we think this is an A plus worthy type of story. So we're going to dig into it now, Jeff. This story comes to us by way of the Progressive Magazine through some reporting by Teresa Albano. And she reports that Illinois, the state of Illinois, recently enacted a law requiring high schools to teach media literacy. Although many schools throughout the country already teach media, media literacy in some way or another, Illinois is the first state in the nation to make it compulsory starting in the 2022-2023 school year. So that's soon, that's soon, that's next school year. High schools in Illinois will, re will provide instruction for students to learn how to analyze and communicate information from a variety of mediums, including digital, interactive, audio, visual, and print. The Chicago-based Illinois Library Association and the Seneca-based Association of Illinois School Library Educators, also known as IO, championed the passage of the media literacy law. IO President Mary Jo Matosek, herself a veteran school librarian, says media literacy isn't just about finding information, but also evaluating it and asking who's putting the information out there. It includes teaching methods to help students understand viewpoints, reporting, opinions, use of facts, and context. Now, in the age of folks crying indoctrination and pointing to public schools, surely this bill that requires public schools to teach students how to evaluate sources for themselves and separate fact from fiction, of course, must have been popular across the political spectrum, right? Well, the bill passed the General Assembly almost exclusively along party lines with only three Republican state senators voting for it. State Republicans strongly opposed this media literacy bill. Among them was State Representative Adam Niemerg, who told the media that the bill was, quote, anti-Trump, anti-conservative. And he also said it was an attempt by the left to, quote, get into our school systems at a young age and teach them the means of the mainstream media. Jeff, man, I, I would have thought a bill requiring schools to teach students how to separate fact from fiction and analyze media sources and kind of like dig past, dig past whatever narratives are there. 
I would have thought that's what Republicans wanted because they very much are not for, um, quote unquote, indoctrination. So, Jeff, tell me, what are your thoughts about this this media literacy requirement for schools in Illinois and the Republican outrage over such a requirement? Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to say uh, it's an A freaking plus well-deserved. Okay. Now, of course, the devil will be in the details around implementation, uh, as it always is with, you know, with any curriculum. Um, but I do applaud very much the, um, the recognition that this is currently a historical moment where we are facing an existential threat to what, what remains of democracy in America that is to a significant to a significant extent being driven by uh, our national uh, you know populace's inability to decipher truth from fiction and you know misinformation from information credibility from incredibility if i'm if i'm using that word correctly there um, uh, when it comes to how we are taking in and digesting in the massive amounts of information we consume from media in all of its many forms in this country. And um, the reality is that the institutions that we have in our country best positioned to equip folks with a skill set to be able to not be victims in the wide ocean of information in our media landscape is public school. And so I applaud the officials in Illinois for, for recognizing that and saying there is something we can do about this. And not that this is going to solve every problem right away. You know, this is the kind of thing that if it's done well and stays in place for a generation, it could have, you know, some significant effect um, on the folks who experience it. I most certainly hope that other states take up similar kinds of, uh, of requirements. And, um, and I'll say, Manuel, one of the things that excites me most about this um, and that's not to say that, like, you know, every provision of this piece of legislation is perfect. You know, it's talking about schools have to teach, high schools have to teach one unit over the course of the year, right? So we're, we're not talking about, like, a media studies course or, you know, we're not talking about middle school kids who might even be more susceptible than high school kids. But it's a start, okay? And um, what I love about it, Manuel, is... My reflections on the curriculum in our school is that we are shockingly, maybe not shockingly, we are just um, flagrantly, is the right word, I think, missing content that speaks to the moments we are living in for young people and the realities of what's happening in our world today, which are radically different than the realities we faced when the, the kind of traditional liberal arts curriculum, you know, you take your English and your social studies and your science and your math and, you know, and I'm not saying those things are unimportant, but I'm saying in today's world, where the reality is a person doesn't necessarily have to be the keeper of knowledge in their head, they actually need to be the person who knows enough to know what they do know and what they don't know and how to find information efficiently to help them create new knowledge or apply knowledge um, or relate to other people about different topics. Um, because we have, you know, essentially the collected knowledge and wisdom of the human community available through Google, right? And, uh, and so in that context, what becomes important for young people to learn, I think, shifts, right? Like yeah. there's, there's certainly an argument to be made, Manuel, that things like data science, things like media literacy are more important than some of the traditional liberal arts subjects 
you know, we've taught before. There's arguments that things like ethnic studies, you could say the same thing for, right? That like, what is the core in, in our core curriculum should probably be shifting and morphing to attend to the needs of, of our current moment. And I think this is one example of a state doing something to, um, to speak to that, you know, that sort of need in this moment. So, uh, but you as a, as a history teacher who might be, you know, ostensibly tasked with teaching this one unit on uh, media literacy, what, uh, what's your take, Manuel? Well, I love it. I love the effort. I'll say that. I, I agree with you. It's, it's just a start. I mean, one unit, I mean, especially considering how quickly this landscape changes, I don't think, I don't think anybody believes one unit is enough. This is something that should be integrated into across several classes, but if nothing else, it should be its own robust course. Now it's, it's very promising that this is happening. And I want to shout out those who have already been providing curriculum or creating curriculum to help teachers like myself help students understand the importance of, of these skills. And one, one group that comes to mind, just one that comes to mind, I'm not necessarily saying that they're like phenomenal or anything, but the Stanford History Education Group or SHEG, they have civic online reasoning uh, component to their website where they have a ton of lessons to help students engage in these, these skills. So one of them that I've done with my students, really an OG lesson from like a couple years back, I don't even know if it's still on the website, but it asked students to go to this website about minimum wage and it's, a, it's an article about a minimum wage in Denmark or something and how increasing uh, restaurant workers' minimum wage decreased the, the uh, amount of workers that there were. It was basically all the stuff to saying if you, if you increase minimum wage, it's going to actually be bad for workers somehow. And students were tasked with, the, with finding out or researching whether or not that was a credible article. And long story short, if they, if they did, did some detective work online, they would see that the the group that was behind that article is this conservative economic think tank. And even their website looks really robust and has all these studies. But then if you take it another level deeper to see who's behind the think tank, it's this big restaurateur who you know owns a million restaurants across the nation. So of course, this big restaurant person doesn't want to increase workers' wages in restaurants. So it makes sense. But students had to, would have to go three levels deep to see that the the Denmark story is is just uh it's incredibly biased, incre incredibly like unclear in terms of some of the factual information presented, but they'd have to go three levels deep for that. And that's incredibly difficult with this generation of students who are, have been raised to want instant gratification, on-demand everything, on-demand everything. So the patience that it takes to really dig into the sources is something that I think is an ongoing challenge for people as we live in an increasingly like click, click, I want my instant answer right now type of world. So I say that all to say, this is difficult stuff, man. This is gonna be difficult stuff, especially since the landscape is changing so quickly. I mean, students will have to understand algorithms. So many students, they absorb a, a ton of content through TikTok and TikTok's algorithm. Like, I don't know, Jeff, if you've ever, like if you've downloaded TikTok and just like played around, but that, the algorithm is like super responsive to like every little thing that you do, liking this video, skipping that video, staying on this video for 15 seconds, but only staying on this other one for five seconds. And you start to see a difference in the type of videos that show up on your feed. It's, students will have to really be able to dig into like how those algorithms are structured and how that influences the content that you're presented with. And then you're thinking about that content and how you interact with that content. And that's something that I think most of us teachers, since we are, since we didn't grow up in the same type of environment, will need a lot of support in a lot of support. And I'm, 
I'm really, really not surprised that Republicans are against this because it's to their advantage for folks to just buy into the conspiracy BS and to just always be outraged without there really being any factual reason to be outraged. So I'm not surprised that Republicans are against this, but if we are serious about this, it wouldn't it's like an all hands on deck type of issue. Like this is something that yeah. needs to be way more than one unit, needs to be across classes and, and teachers need a lot of support. I agree with you. I think this is something that perhaps should start being considered part of the core curriculum because once somebody is, is able to capably analyze information and research and, and do all this stuff and, and know what they're looking at in terms of the value of it and whether or not it's, it's you know, factual versus opinion and all that stuff. Once a person's able to do that, so much of the other, you know, quote unquote core curriculum, they, they could access that on their own. Um, but being able to, to do this type of stuff well is critically important for our democracy, man, or what's left of whatever kind of democracy we got, man, because the misinformation is killing us, man. It's killing us in a very literal yeah. sense during this pandemic. But just even it's, yeah, man. We need more than one unit. But shout out to Illinois for sure. And I'll I'll I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, no, I fully appreciate that, uh, Manuel. And I, I just want to give a very quick shout out to one of our former guests on the show, uh, Dr. Goldie Muhammad, uh, who when she joined us, you know, was talking about her culturally and historically responsive framework for you know for literacy. Um, and one of the, the pursuits, she calls them, is criticality, right? And she talked about, you know, black literary societies in the 19th century, uh, you know, thinking about the purposes of literacy as being about helping people to be able to discern between truth and falsehood at a glance, right? And I'm paraphrasing a bit. She says that more eloquently, but uh, this conversation makes me think a lot about that, that like we need that as, like, as a, that's, that's what media, media literacy is offering us, right? Or part of what it's offering us in this moment is the ability to discern truth from falsehood and to do so in a landscape where uh, we have so much information and so many, frankly, disingenuous or bad actors in that yeah. landscape who are, you know, spewing propaganda and and uh, framing it as news. Right. They have their website. It looks like a newspaper website, but it's really just some, you know, propaganda outfit or corporation spewing its stuff. Right. Um, and so it, it takes work. Right. We have to train ourselves and, and learn the discipline of being able to to at least know at a minimum Mm, this is suspect and it's kind of setting off my spidey sense, right? Um, at a minimum. Um, and hopefully to be able to do what you described is like, well, let's dig into the source information here and try and understand who is the speaker that I'm actually hearing. So great stuff uh, from Illinois. Look forward to seeing, you know, what comes next on this front. Yeah. All right, Jeff, that was an A freaking plus, man. Let's let's hear another A plus story, man. What we got? Let's get another A. Let's go. Let's go. Give them all A's, Jeff. Let's you know, go. man. Well, today it's a show of of uh, you know of extremes. We're going from one end of the of the spectrum to the other. So this grade, man, well, is a F minus minus. F minus minus. 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 <laughs> yes. Wow. Well, that would have to be on the like zero to one hundred percentage scale. And I know a lot of teachers have you know played around with like a fifty percent you know, for, for a, a incomplete, but this a F minus minus, that would have to be like, you got a zero out of 100. 
what, can, what can there be, that be bad, negative Jeff? numbers, this is, Matt? Well, can you get negative percent on on your test? You know uh, what? I don't would, think our learning management question. system allows us to do that. But um, uh, I could I could submit a, a ticket to the help desk, the te the tech help desk, and see <laughs> see how how I could maybe oh, get around that because. If, if it's F minus minus, Jeff, that's that's serious stuff, Jeff. That's serious you, stuff. So you owe me points, man. That's how bad you did. Yes, you, owe, you, <laughs> you will not be released from points. the classroom until I get some points back. <laughs> yes. Ah, uh, okay. Well, let's let's dig into this and see who got an F minus minus today. And it turns out um, <laughs> that the recipient of the F minus minus is this group. Uh, which happens to be located sh a short distance from my home and a, and a short distance from the school where you teach um, called Californians for School Choice. Okay, so just just let that title marinate for a minute and I want you to, you know, <laughs> just soak that in. Okay, so this story uh, appears to us um, as a staff report. Uh, coming from the uh, local publication Pasadena Now uh, here in Pasadena, California. And they tell us that, of course, this group called Californians for School Choice have officially submitted a school choice ballot initiative to the California Attorney General's office for the November 2022 election. So next year's election. According to the group, if approved by voters, the quote unquote Education Freedom Act would bring true school choice to all K-12 students in the state who choose to opt into a new proposed program. Now, under the Education Freedom Act, the money will follow the student instead of the zip code, said Mike Alexander, who is chair of California's for School Choice in a prepared statement released recently. Alexander previously led the Pasadena Patriots, just for some context, which is an arm of the Tea Party. According to statements from the group, the Education Freedom Act has four key components. The first is an education savings account will be established for each K-12 child in California on request. The second is each year that account will be credited with the student's share of what are known as Prop 98 funds, um, which is essentially the per pupil funding that comes from the state to districts, and the share will rise to over $14,000 per year. The third uh, is parents can direct those funds to a participating public charter or accredited private or religious school. Private schools must be accredited and conform with local health and safety standards. And the last provision is any unspent funds will be will accumulate a year to year and can be spent on college, vocational training or other qualified educational expenses. Funds not spent by the time a student reaches age 30 will be returned to the Treasury. Now, according to Alexander, the measure would help many of California's low income and communities of color who have been, quote, trapped in the worst schools by their poverty and their zip code. A poor education ensures that the cycle of poverty will continue. Without equal access to a quality education, future Californians will lack the knowledge and skills they need to participate fully in the complex economy of the future, end quote. Now, this ballot initiative will require one million valid signatures to qualify for the ballot because it would amend the state's constitution. California's for School Choice is planning an aggressive statewide signature gathering effort, uh, which should be starting very soon. They will have 180 days to gather those million signatures. And Manuel, uh, tell us what you think about um, Californians for School Choice and their 
uh, well-earned F-minus-minus grade today. Well, Jeff, you heard the man. They're doing this for the low-income communities of color who are stuck in yes. these disastrous public schools, Jeff. How can you be against this? Look at this Tea Party patriots standing up for, for yeah, low-income folks across California. For the, for the people, yeah. You know, they, they are the folks who are anti-racist and anti-oppression. Just look at what they're doing. Just look, Jeff. Just yeah. look. Yeah. Um, if they were serious about that, if they were serious about wanting to help the low-income communities of color across California, maybe they could fashion up an initiative where that, that, money, that money would go directly to those communities and not go off to these private schools that have historically served um, not students of color, not low-income folks. So to drive more taxpayer money directly to private schools and religious schools certainly isn't something that is going to help low-income communities of color. In fact, it's just another way to take money out of the public schooling system and funnel it to private schools where more affluent folks have historically been able to sort of separate and segregate themselves and their children from from the rest of us folks. So yeah, it's, it's absolute trash, Jeff. It's absolute trash. And if anybody's like, well, it kind of sounds like, well, I mean, it's taxpayer money. You pay taxes. Why shouldn't you be able to take your taxpayer money to the school of your choice? The, the reason is the public school system itself, it needs to be built up in such a way as to provide effective quality education for any child, any zip code, as they love to say, you know, base it on not on your zip code, base it on this and that. No, like every zip code should have quality public schools within it. And you cannot do that. You cannot do that if you set up mechanisms to funnel money out of public schools and funnel them to private schools that are not set up for the set success of, of everyday folks in California. And this is one of the many, many ways that right-leaning folks are trying to dismantle public schooling as we know it. A lot of folks have recently started reporting more about how this conservative attack against critical race theory, the conservative attacks against masks in schools and uh, vaccine mandates, and the conservative push to, to show up to school board meetings and bully school board members and try to elect new school board members who are on the, uh, on the, the, the fringes of the, of the right. That all is set up to try to dismantle whatever kind of public education system we even have hanging, hanging on right now. And that is very dangerous stuff, Jeff. It's very dangerous stuff. Public education for, for any democracy, any, any nation to thrive and be healthy, we need a robust public education system that supports students of all backgrounds, all, all income levels, all neighborhoods, all everything, so that they could so they could be part of creating a better future and part of creating a better world for everybody. And you can't do that if you start funneling money out of these schools and into these religious schools. It's, it's really trash. You would think, if anybody's listening who doesn't live in California, you know, you might think like, oh yeah, they're just trying to get that on the ballot. Like, what are the odds of something like this passing? Like, it's, it's obviously, it's obviously a ploy to get uh, money into private schools' hands and it has nothing to do with educational equity. Yeah, but these ballots, man, we get crazy ballots, uh, crazy initiatives on the ballot all the time. We get crazy initiatives, crazy propositions all the time on the ballot because all it takes is some signatures, in this case, a million signatures, which sounds like a lot, but that, that's not, uh, that's not um, impossible for them to achieve. Like these signature gatherers, they hang out outside of grocery stores and Targets and, and this and that, and you walk out after shopping for whatever, and they're like, uh, excuse me, are you a registered voter? Yeah, I am a registered voter. Well, how would you like to support this move to get more money into uh, California... Um, children's hands so that they could have a good quality education. 
oh, I would love for California children to have a good quality education. $14,000? Sure, that sounds great. Let me sign this and go on to my car and go on about my day. A lot of those signatures come from folks who, who don't understand the full complexity of the issue and getting those million signatures isn't that difficult. And then you get it on the ballot and then the ads start and those big money ads that paint a picture, a rosy picture of like this poor student in South Central Los Angeles who was able to go off to this private school and now they're a Stanford graduate and now your kid could be like that too if you vote yes on prop whatever, whatever. That stuff starts to circulate and then we end up with a prop 209 situation where folks are voting for something thinking it does one thing, in reality it does something else. And that's Indeed. dangerous stuff, Jeff. Dangerous stuff, F minus, minus for sure. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm right there with you, man. This, this is... Uh you know, this is a perfect example of what folks on the far right wing extremes in, in this country and frankly, in many places around the world are extremely effective at doing, Manuel, which is projection, right? And manipulation of rhetoric. And so they, you know, they title something, right? Like the Education Freedom Act or, you know, that kind of thing. Who doesn't right? want free education, and, Jeff? I love right, freedom yeah. and I love education. Vote yes. Yeah. And they, and they coming from a place, Manuel, a documented, verifiable place of, of not only dislike, but like violent, uh, hateful, vitriolic policy and actions against poor people, communities of color, uh, marginalized communities of any sort in this country, immigrants, LGBTQ folks, etc. right? They are on the record and in the you know front page headlines of not only hating us but committing acts of violent terrorism uh, state sponsored or otherwise against us right and then co-opting language and rhetoric to put initiatives you know uh, policy initiatives in place that uh, claim the mantle of freedom and justice and patriotism and equality and all these things but are obviously with even the mildest amount of you know of intellectual scrutiny um, really about crushing public institutions privatizing public dollars pouring resources into fundamentalist Christian uh, institutions because you know they're not trying to prop up Muslim schools and Jewish schools okay this this is about Christ, fundamentalist Christian uh, evangelical Christian schools and um, and that's you know this is what their agenda is right it's the it's the toxic soup of white supremacy you know sort of theocracy patriarchy etc. Um, that these folks are interested in, in propping up and maintaining the kind of current status quo and, and racialized caste system that we have. And um, that is, make no mistake, that is their agenda. <laughs> Whatever language they put on top of it uh, is, is, you know, is, is going to morph and evolve over time. But this is what they're actually trying to do. And so we have to be very mindful uh, about allowing this sort of stuff to proceed as though it's an honest uh, debate, right? Or proceed as though it's like a, sin a sincere conversation that they're trying to have. These people hate us, Manuel. <laughs> they do not like us, and they do not want us to have power, equality, opportunity, leadership, control over public institutions, etc. This is their attempt to crush that and suppress us. And I think we have to talk about it in that kind of language. You know what I mean? There's no point in trying to have the conversation on their footing, right? We need to call out what they're trying to do. You want a white supremacist, you know, predatory economic structure 
that hurts us and helps you. And that's what you want. And we are not here for it. So we're voting against all of your, all of your platform. Okay. And, um, you know, I think it's, you know, I think that's the, the sort of space we have to get into because these folks are deeply manipulative, man, deeply, deeply manipulative and um, have no shame in their game. Um, and, you know, in terms of like, there's nothing we can expose about them that's going to humiliate them into silence or convince them that like, oh, this is wrong. You should do the right thing. They, they don't care. <laughs> they believe they are doing the right thing by doing what they're doing now. So that's really it, man. Well, we, we need to speak frankly about what these folks are up to and we have to organize and fight back. It's, it's that simple in my mind. So you mean to tell me that um, the robust private and religious school system isn't, like, isn't going to accept all these poor, low-income children of color? Like, Jeff, these, what about the poor <laughs> black and brown kids who need an education? This, with this 14,000, I'm sure, I'm sure these elite schools are going to welcome them with open arms and everything's yeah. going to be solved, Jeff. And hey, man, with, with that 14000 all you need is another, like, 26000 and you can afford one year of kindergarten at some of these fancy elite private schools. So, yeah. you know, I mean, this is great policy, right? It's fantastic. And, you know, yeah. if, if you happen to be um, all right at the, um, the sports, they might even help you out with that remaining bit that you, that you mm. still owe. Um, yeah, no, nah, this yes. is absolute trash. And I guess I'm also, not also, I'm... I'm certainly concerned about other states doing something similar. Like, yeah, in, in California, I think if this does make it onto the ballot, if it makes it onto the ballot, I do think most Californians who vote are going to see through this. And I, I imagine the, the CTA and a lot of other organizations are going to uh, put a lot of put a lot of um, effort into blocking something like this. So, yeah, I, I, I honestly don't think it's likely to pass in California. But I wouldn't put I wouldn't bet money that it's not going to pass. Uh, I am concerned about other states. I know some states already have something similar to this. And so just generally speaking, the public education system, as we know, it is something that we fully have to really stand up for and defend and fight in, in, in the face of these bills passing, in the face of these these wars at school board meetings, all of this stuff, man, like public schools, man, make them make them quality humanizing spaces for kids across America so they could grow up and create a better world than this, this thing that we're in right now. So, yeah. I think that about does it, Jeff. Damn, man, we should have led with the F minus minus and then ended with the A plus, <laughs> A freaking plus story because now I'm like, oh, everything sucks, everything's trash. Well, the good news, Manuel, is we have coming up next an A++ okay, situation with our, our featured guest on yeah. today's seminar, Dr. Sosin Jaber, who's uh, coming to us live from Chicago, going to be uh, dropping some serious knowledge and wisdom about um, how our schools can and should better serve um, our Arab and Muslim students. So it's going to be dope. You definitely don't want to miss it. Yeah. For sure. I need that. I need that. Let's go. Let's go. All right, folks. Coming up next, today's seminar.
What up, AOTA family? Now, we really appreciate your support. Some of you have reached out uh, letting us know that you would love to leave a five-star review and do a little write-up, but you can't seem to find it on Apple Podcasts because it's kind of buried there. So just so you know, if you are using Apple Podcasts, if you go to your library, which has all the shows that you follow, if you click on our show and then scroll, you got to scroll all the way down to the bottom, at least on my phone, on my version, that's, that's how you do it. Scroll all the way down to the bottom, then you'll see the reviews there and uh, you could leave us that five stars. And if you have a moment to write a little a little write-up, that would be great. These sorts of things help us show up in more educator searches when folks are out there trying to find podcasts to listen to about education and your support goes a long way. Thank you so much. Now back to the show. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. We are so excited to have you here with us. And we have a fantastic guest who is here with us today, coming all the way from uh, Chicago, out in Illinois, where it is uh, hot and humid. Uh, climate change is real, folks, uh, but she is persevering through the heat to join us here uh, on All the Above. Um, it's Dr. Sosin Jaber. Uh, welcome, Dr. Jaber, to All the Above. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so uh, let me tell you a little bit more about Dr. Jaber. Um, she is a global educator and has been for over 20 years. She's held a variety of leadership positions, both in the U.S. and abroad. Dr. Jaber is currently a high school English teacher at East Layden High School in Franklin Park, Illinois. She is the founder of Education Unfiltered Consulting, where she works with schools around the country on curriculum mapping, strategic planning, social justice curriculum, and anti-bias training. Dr. Jaber is a board director of Our Voice Alliance, charged with amplifying the voices of teachers of color to create more equity for students of color. She's the daughter of Palestinian refugees, and Dr. Jaber is one of the founders of the Arab American Education Network. She's a national board certified teacher and has focused most of her research on engaging students in equity work and advocating for Arab and Muslim students. She completed her PhD at Concordia University Chicago with a focus on inclusion and belonging of students from marginalized communities. Uh, welcome again, Dr. Jaber, and I'm gonna kick it over to Manuel for our first question. Man, that bio, I feel like that bio deserves a mic drop. Now, anybody who watches our show or listens knows that we only do the super dope guests here on All of the Above. And Dr. Jaber, like that, it, uh, we are very honored that you took some time out to be here with us on the show because, I mean, you are a phenomenal educator, phenomenal track record, phenomenal, um, phenomenal person. And we know that being on, on shows like this, you know, take some time and take some energy and all that. And especially at a time like now where there's so much going on um, in the world and school year starting up and all that, um, we just very much appreciate you being here. And we want to ask, you know, and in, in how... America constructs, socially constructs race and our understandings of race. We know there's there's intense problems within those constructions. And one of the problems is that folks tend to get lumped together and then other groups tend to be altogether just erased. Groups that represent um, ethnic or cultural majorities in other parts of the world, but, but small numerical minorities in our school system oftentimes are completely erased from conversations and completely forgotten and overlooked. So we wanna ask you, when it comes to our Arab and our Muslim students, and their identities, what should educators and schools know about their identities and how that impacts their experiences in our school system here? Right. 
Well, thank you again for having me today. And that's a really loaded question, especially when we're talking about Arab and Muslim students, because as we all know, Arabs are considered white on the census. So we don't even have like a label that really kind of, um, you know, was a, we're able to identify who they are and what they need in schools. So just so we can name it and not generalize, educators are in different places on their journey, just like people in every other field. Some are there to collect a paycheck and others are there to recognize their role and positionality and how those impact shaping the lives of students and ultimately our future landscape, right? And so there's not much work that's out there to help students understand Arab and Muslim students specifically because and other groups of students. Like we know that if we're going to do equity work and really do it with fidelity and do it well, that entails really uh, immersing yourself in social circles that are similar to the communities and the cultures and the, the communities that we teach, right? And that are representative of what those communities have in them. And, and if that's not what's happening, then you know, oftentimes what they know about those groups is largely stereotypical. Um, an example of that is in a, in a district that I was previously teaching in with a 600% Arab and Muslim student growth. I had a teacher who approached me to ask me how I felt after what my people did in France. Um, again, there's a 600% of growth. So the classes are full of students who look like me. And this teacher saw my headscarf and immediately associated me with ISIS because she was referring to an ISIS bombing that happened in France that weekend. And so immediately my question and my thought was, if this, if this is what she is projecting onto me as one adult to another, one educator to another, how is this playing out in the classroom with these kids who look like me every single day, right? Um, I think Arab and Muslim students, uh, Arab and Muslim communities are often viewed, viewed as they're unengaged um, and when it comes to being more involved in schools. And the reality is Arab and Muslim kids are uh, victims of failed citizenship. That's what Banks calls it, right? Considered perpetual foreigners, unlike other groups of people. They don't come from democratic backgrounds, so self-advocacy is learned and doesn't come naturally, right? So the questions I think that schools and educators need to be asking is, do they know how to be engaged, right? If schools are considered community centers, what are we doing to help engage them so that we are growing communities and spaces that we occupy? Is that not part of a school's responsibility, right? So research shows that Arab and Muslim students are like highly visible where it matters, where invisible, they're highly invisible where it matters in schools, like in, in culturally responsive teaching or social emotional needs or informal identifications in order for us to get put funding to meet their specific needs as a subgroup um, or even representation and leaders and educators in schools, but they're highly visible when it comes to bullying by teachers and by students, mm. right? And it, what ultimately what this is doing is it's creating a sense of duality with most Arab and Muslim students where they feel like they have to leave their cultural linguistic pluralism at the schoolroom door and they have to be either assimilate as much as possible or the other option is that they become kind of very uh, um, antisocial and keep to themselves in order for them to survive their contexts. Um, what educators need to know is that Arabs, most Arab students can really benefit from trauma-informed practices because of the failed citizenship and the traumatic reasons that many of them leave their homelands, they're closely tied and connected to those countries. Um, as a Palestinian, I remember growing up and watching everything that was unfolding in Palestine, the bodies being pulled out of the rubble, the war, and watching my parents who grew up in refugee camps reacting to all of that and feeling most of that with them, right? It is traumatizing. And oftentimes we don't view uh, kids who go through those experiences as, as kids who can benefit from trauma informed practices, even though they're living and being re-traumatized by current events every single day through a TV screen. Um, it's really important for most educators to understand that 
Arabs are not necessarily Muslims. Muslims are not necessarily Arabs. Those lines are often blurred and they're synonymous with, with each other, right? Arabs and Muslims are not monolithic. Depending on which country you come from in Middle East, in the Middle East, they're very, very different. We were just talking before the show, even just the climate, right? Culture, the dialect, the patriarchy versus matriarchy, all of those things are really, really different. And so when we kind of group them together as Arabs and Muslims, and then put this like culture of fear um, over that and, and make them feel, make them seem like they're this, these perpetual foreigners that they'll never, ever be able to kind of coexist with anybody because they're so different. Then what we get is this like barrier and isolation for most Arab and Muslim kids in schools. Yeah, I, I really appreciate your your words there, Dr. Jaber, and um, you're making me think not only about some of the issues of um, like representation and you know visibility versus invisibility um, in in how we count people and in our curriculum and practice, um, but also about language and how we talk uh, about issues of identity. And I, I have found at least that, um, you know, having worked in, in schools on, on both coasts and, and a pretty broad swath of, of the country, that um, most often our conversations about race and identity uh, kind of um, tend to focus on the sort of black-white uh, um, uh, dynamic or um, the America's kind of fundamental founding sins of like settler colonialism and chattel slavery. And we've never really reconciled um, or gone through any truth and reconciliation um, process as a nation. So it, perhaps it makes sense that we kind of can't get past in, in many places uh, talking about race and identity through those, um, through those particular dynamics and, and those lenses. And at the same time, we have, you know, as you as you mentioned, growing numbers uh, of students from immigrant students from many different parts of the world, and you know, second, third generation folks who who have been in this country for some time who are, who are just um, whose identities are more complex than the kind of um, historical traditional constructs of race um, in America. And I'm wondering, in you know, in that light, if you can offer some some thoughts and words. For, uh, for practitioners here about how you approach the work of talking about race and identity um, in a context where it's just more complicated than like, you know, are you black, are you white, are you Latino? Um, and uh, what advice you might offer to other practitioners who find themselves in similar situations and are trying to navigate this, this kind of complicated landscape? Yeah, thank you for that. Again, another loaded question. I, I think Probably one of the most important things that we have to ask, especially for those who consider themselves to be proponents of like social equity and justice work and the DI, like all these key terms. And I like the air quotes, right? Because I feel like a lot of times we label things and then it becomes a list that we just kind of check off and then it's done, right? And this kind of work is never done. But I think in kind of the planning and the pre-work that needs to happen, there needs to be a couple of things. And that's just as important as who we are representing. We have to ask ourselves who's not being represented, right? Which voices aren't there? Um, because oftentimes it's the same voices that are constantly missed. And those are the narratives that are intentionally being silenced and omitted. Um, we have to recognize before anything 
that this traditional uh, work with just educators isn't good enough anymore. The kids need to be a part of the work and they need to be sitting at the table. Like we do a lot of trainings for teachers, but I run equity conferences and conventions for students that unpacks much of the work that we do with adults with kids, right? They need to be part of the conversation because at the end of the day, um, I'm a firm believer that anti-racist work in schools is what disrupts racism in our world and really shifts the narrative. Education will impact policy and not the other way around, right? Like the Raiders of Capitol Hill were one students in classrooms. I wonder if they were immersed in such conversations, if that would have changed the way the story unfolded. Um, our classroom, my class is an American literature class that's rooted in social justice, action, research, and activism. Students learn about themselves first. They interrogate their positionality. Um, we call that learn. Uh, then they link the three L's, the, they link their stories to other marginalized and silenced groups. Um, and we kind of follow the model of um, uh, Ruth uh, Bishop's, Ruth, Ruth Sims Bishop, where she says mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors. So creating mirrors for students to really think about things like intersectionality, positionality. I always ask them, I want you to consider how does the world view you? How do you view yourself? How does the world view you? And how does that impact how you view the world and others, right? Um, then we talk about other marginalized stories, and we really try to be to start with the demographics of the students that are represented in our school. But I think that's a limitation of culturally responsive teaching because we live in a world where the entire world is at your fingertips on your phone. And so, if we're only focusing on demographics of our schools, how much are we really preparing kids for more? diverse landscapes, college, career, moving, other things. And so we try to, um, you know, really uh, to encompass as many stories of as many groups of people as we can and really focus on those that are more silenced than the ones that we, common, what we commonly hear. Um, and the last part of that, because they are kids, it's really, really super important to kind of give them a toolbox of what they can do with this information. So we always end the year with, now that you know, what are you going to do with what you know? Um, and that's our lead. That's our last L. So, uh, and that's action, uh, action research. It's creating a uh, resistance arts, um, spoken word, paintings, uh, plays, music, um, you know, podcasts, TED Talks, whatever they feel they need in order for them to be able to contribute to changing their school, changing their community, or changing the world at large. Um, and showing them that activism has so many different faces, that it's not just protesting and being at the front lines in that way if it's not for them. Um, in my work with educators, I'm doing a lot of that same work, right? I'm, 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 I'm of the mindset that we can no longer wait for the naysayers um, to jump on board on the equity train. Policy and practice really need to be reformed in order to force compliance. I'm not a believer of cookie cutter equity work in any shape or form. I think that equity work for a district must keep the demographics of the community, the staff, their specific needs, their history at the forefront, and where the teachers and the district leaders in that school are, and that looks different for every school. Um, and I think that it can't be done if all the stakeholders aren't sitting at the table, right? Equity work is a representation of the fact that schools are community centers, and if the community isn't part of the work, often what happens is one of two scenarios. A, we're checking the box of equity work, or B, Equity work with good intent, but it's not what kids need. And often equity work that's gone wrong is an, an inequity that often leads to more harm. And so in order for us to avoid either of those scenarios, when we have everybody sitting at the table, we're really meeting the needs of that community um, and, and empowering the kids of that community to do that work moving forward that if it's done enough, hopefully, like I always tell my students, you're going to be the president and the lawyers and the doctors and the senators. And if we get this conversation right now, by default, we're changing that landscape and we're changing that narrative. I love that. I want to be in your class. 
I want to be in that class. That sounds amazing. So now the, the issue that is often referred to as like the third rail of American politics is one that as educators and as school systems, we're nowhere near being, um, being clear and like on the same page about. And that, of course, is the Israeli occupation of Palestine. And when it comes to how that is treated in our curriculums and our textbooks, Oftentimes it's either glossed over or kept out altogether or um, the impressions that we get or the impressions that are um, put upon students are, are very one-sided. And we could look at California specifically and our ethnic studies model curriculum that recently passed and the, the shift from the first draft to the final draft where um, any discussion about Palestine, any discussion about the Israeli occupation that was in the, the first draft ended up being all the way gone, all the way erased and not present at all in that, that final draft which of course has a lot of folks, a lot of folks upset. And you have been very, very public and very upfront about supporting educators in their own education about Palestine and Palestinian history and Palestinian culture. And we're wondering if you could share with us a little bit about um, the work that you've done. We've seen you on social media um, post uh, sending out different different packages to educators to help educate them about Palestine. But we're wondering if you could share with us a little bit about that work and a little bit about what you envision our, our school system doing to, to do better by how we talk about and think about and educate students around the um, Israel-Palestinian conflict. So I just want to start by saying that like by calling it the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it kind of connotes that there are two equal sides not seeing eye to eye. Indeed, indeed. And so just that language, sometimes we need to like reconsider and kind of it diminishes the ethnic cleansing, the apartheid and the gen genocide that's actually occurring with the Palestinian people. So it's definitely much more than a conflict. Um, and I think that's where a lot of the work is lost, right? Like a lot of even people, Angela Davis calls, calls equity work that uh, people who are willing to advocate for every other group except for Palestine. She calls them progressive except for Palestine. She calls them peps in her book and in her work because historically, even people who are very willing to put themselves out there for justice work are not willing to even talk about or touch Palestine in any shape or form, right? The US historically has blind bipartisan support for Israel that's reflected in the single story narrative that's told in schools. It's kind of like the African proverb, until the lion tells his story, the tale will always glorify the hunter. And so we have yet to hear the Palestinian story um, and the story that we currently have is the one that, uh, dom that, that dominates the media is the one of the oppressor. Um, the intentional erasure, Palestine no longer exi existing on the map, the cultural appropriation of Palestinian foods, clothes, arts, the land and home theft, the creation of illegal settlements, all of that is diminished um, in the narrative. And, and what we see is the Palestinian um, kind of terrorist. And that's the image that's constantly portrayed um, as they're the aggressors and Israel is trying to save itself and everything that it responds to. Um, and I think that in my work, you know, it's, it's really hard to even be an educator in a public school and even advocate for Palestine or say Palestine because automatically you're labeled as anti-Semitic. And it's really important for us to kind of differentiate between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism because Jews and Palestinians lived together as neighbors and community members for decades and centuries before the state of Israel was established, right? 
Um, and so Zionism is, anti-Zionism is against the state of Israel and the crimes that the state of Israel has committed against the Palestinian people, the indigenous people of the land. Um, and so I think that by itself, the label of anti-Semitism keeps many educators from talking about it. And I, I would contend that anywhere Palestine is really is being taught in schools, it's often taught from a very Zionist, anti-Palestinian perspective. Um, and, and if that's, like you said, if it's being taught at all, right, it's being taught from an Israeli perspective. Um, and 9-11 has made it acceptable uh, and desensitized most people to the shedding of Arab blood. I know recently we were at a protest for Palestine and we had and, uh, people who were against the protest on the other side saying, you know, let them kill them all after 9-11. You know, they all deserve to die. Palestine had nothing to do with 9-11. Palestinians had nothing to do with 9-11. So there's, again, that kind of lumping and putting all of Arabs and Muslims together as one group, and we're responsible for everything that happens. Um, and so we're kind of desensitized, right? And so I think that it's really important for Palestinian American kids in public schools, for, for educators to understand that they are continuing to be re-traumatized every time their narrative is butchered and their occupiers and oppressors are being glorified. Palestinian genocide is often justified by reiterating the Palestinian, the idea that Palestine is a land for a people, for a people without a land. That's the quote that was used. And that's a phrase that made it, that justified um, the establishment of a country on the carcasses of Palestinians, right? Essentially creating a Holocaust that continues for more than 70 years. Um, and so in the work that I've tried as much as I can um, from a distance to, to speak wherever anybody's willing to listen to educators, um, just to give them the other perspective, the Palestinian story, right? Because we need to think about how many Palestinian students feel safe in public schools. How many feel that they can bring their whole selves into, a, into the classroom without feeling that they're going to be accused of being anti-Semitic or anti-American, right? I know Palestinian kids that I teach who hesitate even with me, another Palestinian, to say that they're Palestinian. They often identify as Arab, but will not specify that they're Palestinian. Um, our kids are victims of perpetual identity theft. They're made to feel complicit because they're forced to abandon any markers of who they are to survive systems. And so these educational packages that I sent out are things that, and I even had a lot of hate that came back too of teachers saying like, why are you trying to demonize Israel, Israel? And why are you trying to tell us that they're, and then it absolutely wasn't any of that. They are historical texts. Um, Palestinian narratives, the story that we don't hear to educators all around the country who are willing to listen. And I understand that institutions aren't ready to do this work, just like the state of California, um, you know, decided to completely omit that narrative. Most institutions similarly aren't willing to do that work in fear a lot of times because of the, of the backfire of being considered anti-Semitic. But there are educators who in silos in their classrooms are willing to bring the Palestinian narrative through a poem, through a story, through a historical text. And so this was an attempt to try to give them the information that they needed in order for them to be really to be able to bring that story into the classroom um, in accurate ways. Because oftentimes when we're looking at Google and things like that, again, that whole idea of equity work gone wrong um, be, is being inequitable. We're bringing in more stereotypical things into the classroom that are re-traumatizing and hurting those kids. Um, so we have to think of schools as complicit in the theft of the Palestinian story through their curriculum, right? Zionist mantra is subliminally embedded in the minds of the values of and the beliefs of most Americans. And it has the idea that Arabs and Palestinians are violent and, and unable to coexist. And that affects Palestinian and Arab kids here, right? Especially since America is the country that is funding Palestinian genocide, like without anything, without any question marks. Like we just sent $3.2 billion during a pandemic where we have 
I was in California a few weeks ago and I was in California before COVID and I was shocked at how many cardboard boxes of homeless people were under uh, on the highway under bypasses more how many more there were after COVID than there was well during COVID than there was before COVID. And so when, when we think about $3.2 billion of our money being sent, our tax dollars being sent overseas in order to support genocide, it just doesn't make any sense to me how we are doing that when we have people without insurance and people who are homeless and how much there is a need of that money here in our homeland. Um, but also it's a, just a reminder of that blind support. And so when educators start talking about these things, we're raising awareness. Like I said earlier, tomorrow, those kids, when they're voting, will not vote for those funds to be to continue to be sent to um, fund these things. And we'll, you know, we can change that narrative, right? But it means that we have to kind of disrupt what's happening and really tell that story the way it's happening um, and, and tell it with fidelity. So teachers need to be able to give voice and space for that narrative. And that really requires unlearning most of what we've been taught. It means immersing ourselves in the beautiful Palestinian culture, understanding the history from the scope of the indigenous people. Um, and the chances of that really happening, to be honest, <laughs> are probably as real as, um, you know, kids today learning that, the, you know, the truth about the massacre and genocide of the indigenous Native Americans and us acknowledging and naming our hand in that history and their rights today as a result of the injustices that were inflicted upon them. It's so unlikely, and we know that we're not there yet. So I recognize that my project is a drop in the ocean and helping educators take on the work in the silos of their classroom because, again, I recognize institutions aren't ready to do that work, but it was an attempt to place the silenced Palestinian narrative and the erased history in the, in the hands of educators around the country and an attempt to support the unlearning process of what we currently know about Palestinian ethnic cleansing and genocide. Yeah, I, I really appreciate um, what you're saying and your just moral clarity and, and courage, um, uh, Dr. Jaber, on, on this issue. And I think there's, um, there's just so many... Uh, so many ways in which what you described is true, literally true in the sense of, of how our curriculum uh, addresses um, the, you know, the Palestinian people or not, um, how our curriculum addresses the treatment of Israel and its treatment of the Palestinian people. Um, and uh, so much of the just kind of erasure and silence um, that is present in those uh, in those discussions, whether that's coming from a position of, you know, fear of accusation of anti-Semitism or just, you know, outright uh, devaluing of the lives of Palestinian people, the effect, um, you know, remains remains pretty similar and largely universal, as far as I can tell, um, across our, our kind of national educational spectrum. Um, so appreciate you, you being, you know, a real voice of, of clarity on that drop in the ocean as it may be, um, you know, there, there have been other examples um, in our history of, you know, um, efforts to support the overturning of apartheid states in, you know, in South Africa, for example, that at one time perhaps seemed, uh, seemed impossible, um, and yet things, things change. And so, um, anyways, appreciate your, your courage on that front. And, um, for our, for our last question today, um, wanted to kind of turn to an aspect of, of current events. And um, recently, of course, we've seen and the, the mainstream media has been hyper focused on for the first time in you know, 15 plus years uh, on the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. 
and of course the all of the kind of drama and um, you know refocusing on a lot of the violence and uh, justice issues that are are taking place um, in that country as a result of this history of war and occupation uh, that America has waged on Afghanistan. And, um, you know, as schools across the country are either just opening or about to open, um, I can imagine there is both uh, great interest in students and among teachers in talking about this issue and kind of bringing current events into the classroom. And also this may be a real moment of um, reopening of some, some wounds from the kind of post 9-11 era of you know, it's okay to be racist and discriminatory against, um, against Muslim students, against Arabs more generally. Um, so with that said, wondering if you can share with us how um, you hope that schools will approach teaching of, um, you know, issues around questions about Afghanistan um, as we kind of kick off the school year across the country. You know, um I, I think that the wounds were never healed and they existed way before 9-11. And I think that with our, um, the events of the last few years, I think with our last presidency and other things, I feel like, again, all of that kind of built to where we are today. I have two daughters, um, one that's 14 and one that's 23. My 23 year old daughter was obviously, um, two or three years old when 9-11 happened and grew up in a, in, we lived in New York City. So we grew up in New York, literally um, right by the, the, the towers. And, and whenever, you know, everything was there. We, I've, I've covered since I was nine years old, um, didn't face as much pushback as an Arab Muslim woman as we do today with my 14-year-old daughter, which I think is contrary to what most believe, right? Like people would obviously believe, think that at that time, things were a lot more um, intense. And, and I would, would tell people that, no, they've gotten more intense, right? And, and a testament to that is my oldest daughter um, covered immediately when, when she reached puberty and felt like, you know, it was time for her to cover religiously. My younger daughter still struggles today because she's afraid of what that headscarf would mean because she lives in a community that's much more volatile and not accepting of who she is as an Arab and a Muslim. And I don't blame all of that on 9-11, but I think 9-11 really made that, uh, magnified that fear, normalized the hate and acting on the hate came with our last presidency even more when it came to Arabs and Muslims specifically. Um, an example of that, like in most schools, I think every single one of my three kids has read The Kite Runner. And The Kite Runner is the text that most schools decide to include if they have a large population of Arab kids because they think that they're being culturally responsive. And if we want to kind of unpack The Kite Runner, it's a beautifully written story that made its 15 minutes of fame after, right after 9-11 right? Does not distinguish between culture and religion. So it makes it easy to reinforce the stereotype that 9-11, the way it was portrayed by the media was a religious war, right? Um, an Islam against the rest of the world. Um, and that the images emerging from Afghanistan also now are working to reinforce and reignite Arab and Islamic hate since they reinforce the threat of a violent religion that even marginalize, marginalizes its own people. And that encapsulates all Arabs and all Muslims, right? We all kind of get, again, get lumped into that category, and then we see the impacts of that here, like walking in the mall, you get people who will kind of whisper under their breath to tell you to go back to your country because you look like those people on TV that represent that. And so there's no differentiation. And in schools, we're not doing a good enough job to bring those um, to bring those conversations to the table. Um, research shows that Arab students face more intense identity-based bullying than any other group of students. 
I had a girl student on the bus in the same community that I taught in, who was every time she walked onto the bus, the students agreed that they would have paper balls and throw them at her and then scream Allahu Akbar and then all hide under their chairs, right? And this was her daily experience. And she went to the Dean of Students, she did what she was supposed to do, and was told that it wasn't bullying because it was different kids every single day. And so again, glossed over, right? Like the Arab experience, if this was any other student from any other group, would the response would have, would have the response would have been the same. Um, 9-11 is always taught as a religious war. My children have had conversations time and time again. Again, like, and we have to keep in mind that many of the kids that we're teaching today weren't even alive when 9-11 happened. These are kids that are studying it as something historical. So my hope is that, uh, you know, my daughters, the first time we moved back, we moved back from Dubai, first 9-11 commemoration, my daughter was sitting in a classroom. Her teacher literally pointed at her and asked her to give her opinion. And my daughter came home in tears that day. My daughter, my oldest daughter is very, very vocal, very like, very like um, proud of her heritage and her cultural and linguistic um, identity and takes that with her wherever she goes fearlessly and came home crying that day because she felt like her teacher was asking her to apologize for something that she had nothing to do with clearly, right? So why not teach how 9-11 changed the landscape for Arab and Muslim communities around the world? Why not talk about how the media manipulated the narrative to support anti-Arab and anti-Muslim sentiments? This is also part of that history and part of the now, right? Like, yes, it was a trauma for everybody. Many Muslims and many Arabs died in the towers that day as well, right? It was a trauma for the Arab and Muslim community, but something more than the people also died that day. There was an integrity that went away with it. There was a, um, a violence that came with that, that continues until today that we choose to ignore um, and that we have presidents and other leaders uh, use to their advantage to continue um, violence and, and, and enacting like unfair laws and, and things um, on groups of people that don't, that don't apply to everybody else. And it's really changed the experience of kids who weren't even alive when it happened. Um, and that's what we need to be acknowledging. Again, really amplifying those narratives and giving voice to them in order for us to get the whole story instead of part of the story, which is what we normally do when we're trying to silence part of that story because we have an agenda. Yeah, well, um, Dr. Jaber, you have given us so much to think about here today. And I think um, for, I would, I would think for many educators across the country, especially in this moment where, um, you know, the media is doing its thing and there is a lot of, um, you know, uh, fake history or <laughs> invented history that's being, uh, you know, plastered all over the headlines uh, on TV and print media right now. Um, the issues that you're naming today are so vital for educators to be thinking about and um, engaging with responsibly um, in classrooms across the country. So really appreciate your, um, your insights and your expertise uh, in today's conversation. And uh, thanks so much for joining us today. I appreciate you as well. Thank you again for having me. All right, folks, that's it for today's seminar. We are moving on now to our class dismissed. Stay tuned. All right, folks, we have reached that time of the episode where we want to give shout outs to folks doing wonderful things in the world of education. Today's shout out, a little different, a little different. Um, we're shouting out, not necessarily, not necessarily educators, but we're shouting out the voters of California. Jeff, why are we, why are we shouting out California's voters? Oh, man, well, we are, we're pulling a, we're pulling a Babe Ruth uh, right now. We're pulling a, um, 
uh, I don't know who, uh, who the other noteworthy figures in history who, who called their shot, but we are officially saying, uh, even though we're recording this uh, right now on September 11th, and the election here in the state of California to decide upon the fate of Governor Gavin Newsom takes place in three days on September 14th. We are calling our shot and saying a pre preemptive congratulations to the voters of California for not putting in place Black Trump, a.k.a. Larry Elder, a.k.a. Uh, Clarence Thomas wannabe, a.k.a. Candace Owens' uncle, a.k.a. whatever other Uncle Tom configuration you could think of, crazy nutjob right-wing Larry Elder as governor of the state of California who wishes to do harm and bring sickness and death upon the children and school communities of the state of California. We are saying props to you, California voters, for not effing it up <laughs> and putting that fool in charge. You might not like Gavin Newsom, I'm much more of a radical than Gavin Newsom is, for sure. I don't particularly love him or his policies, but I know for a fact we ain't trying to have no Larry Elder in charge of anything in the state of California. So uh, congratulations. Nice job. And if we're wrong, <laughs> we will Ooh. see you next week uh, to talk about all of you people out there who let this insanity happen. That's... That's what we have to say today, Manuel. Yes, indeed. We are calling our shot. Gavin Newsom survives this recall attempt, and we are spared from having the Black California version of Iran DeSantis um, attacking our schools and stripping away mass mandates and all that stuff. We're, nah, we're dodging all that, man. We're dodging all that. And, and if we're wrong, shout out to everyone who will be fighting the fight of their lives this school year to try to maintain some semblance of safety, some semblance of protocols and masks and all that stuff in the classrooms because it's uh it's going to be a fight. Jeff, I am I'm thinking about I think it was a uh, I think it was Swaggy P for the Lakers who like shot a three and, and turned around and started celebrating <laughs> and then it like bricks off off the yeah. rim like that that's us if we're wrong uh, here if we are wrong here yes. that is the image of all of the above right now but let's hope we're not wrong man oh yeah we could the beauty the beauty of how of the order of events here manuel is we could actually put that gif up on yes over the episode uh because we should know the outcome before this episode actually launches it's very um you know it's very uh time traveling right now in this, in this yeah, discussion. Man. But, um, but yeah, man, California, thank you for not making a tragic mistake and putting one of America's most disappointing black people in charge of the state yes. of California's uh, public affairs. And, um, and honestly, on a very serious note, this man is part of the death cult, okay? Like this Larry Elder, I'm saying, is part of the death cult of people who like want kids and families to get sick and die and does not care. And we know that that will have a disproportionately harmful effect on the poorest, blackest, and brownest people um, and communities in this state. And, um, you know, we, we can't let that happen, plain and simple. So um, thanks, for, thanks for voting no, everybody. And uh, now we can get back to community organizing, working on, you know, Good, good trouble, as they say. Indeed, indeed.
All right, folks, that about does it for this episode of All of the Above. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, please, thumbs up, uh, five stars, write a little review, whatever you can will help us out big time. We are a very small operation over here, and uh, any, any little support goes a long way. And, of course, AOTAshow.com for all the previous episodes and links to our merchandise and other ways to support all that good stuff, AOTAshow.com. Or you could scroll under this, and we'll have, we'll have all the links there, too. All right, folks. See y'all next time.